Um, there was a there was a, a show on TV a few years back. Um, Sarah really liked watching it. It was called A Baby Story. It came on TLC. Anybody ever anybody ever watch A Baby Story? Um, some of the women raise their hands. The men will never admit it, even though you know you've watched it. Um, I am secure in my manhood, so I can say that I have watched a baby story. And, and um, what it is, it's like this couple gets pregnant, and it tells you it, it's kind of like this, this um, overarching picture of the nine months um, leading up to the birth of the baby. And it, and it, it, it ends, the climax of every episode is um, the, the, they give birth to the baby, and then it's you know, put in the mother's arms, and it's, you know, it's all touchy-feely and, and um, warm fuzzies and, and everything. And uh, we, we used to watch that um, early on when Sarah and I got married. Um, we knew that we wanted kids, and, and, um, and so that was one of the things that she liked to do, and so we would watch it. And, and uh, they, they did a spinoff of that show one time, and um, it was called Bringing Home Baby. It only lasted for one season, and the reason it only lasted for one season is because it was like a horror film. Um, because they realized we can't show this on TV because we're, we're having these first time parents and they're bringing home this child and it's, it's, people are going to stop having children if they continue to see what it's really, really like. And, um, but Sarah and I, nonetheless, um, we, we dived into the realm of parenthood and I can remember it's been, um, it's just, just, uh, just about nine years ago. Um, Sarah and I, we had been married for, uh, we'd been married for about eight months. And I remember in our home in Jacksonville, I'll never forget standing in the bathroom with her and, um, we're hunched over the, the vanity counter there. Um, and, and we're both just, just eyes intent on this little plastic stick laying there on, on this counter and um, we're, we're waiting to see if, if, if a minus sign shows up or, or if a plus sign shows up in this, this little window. And uh, in those few moments while we're looking at that little stick, I, I can tell you, time stood still. It, it was, I, I, I don't think I breathed, to be honest. Um, hopes and doubts, fears, strength, celebrations, agony, it, it all, everything just kind of hung in the balance. I can't say whether or not I was expecting a plus sign or a negative sign. I, I, I wasn't really sure. I guess part of me really kind of expected both of them. But, but time went forward and sure enough, there was a little pink plus sign in the window. And I, I, I really kind of remember not having much of a reaction at all. I, 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 maybe it was just shock. I, I don't know. It, it hadn't really sunk in. But I remember just I turned on the shower and I got in the shower and got ready and went to work. Went about my day. It, it was it was so it, it was just it was it was surreal. I, I didn't um, I didn't really know what to expect. But but what I did know is that when that little plus sign appeared, my world turned upside down. Now. I didn't know it then, but I would later come to find it out. At, at that moment, I, I had no clue. But, but it started to sink in as the weeks went along and as Sarah began, um, her body began to reveal the fact that a, that a baby was growing inside of her. And, and we began to tell our family and friends um, the exciting news. And, 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 and it started to sink in then, but I still didn't really realize what was about to happen. But plenty of people told me what was about to happen. That's the funny thing about when you're pregnant, especially for the first time. 
Uh, it seems like every person in the world deems it their civil duty to tell you what you're in for. You know, I mean, you'll be at the grocery store, right? And somebody will look over and go, so when's your baby do? Now, um, that's, a, that's a pretty dangerous question to ask. You need to be sure that you're sure that you're sure before you ask that question. Because if you ask that question to some dude whose wife just is a little heavy, you might get punched in the face. But people look over and they say, when's your baby due? And you tell them. And, and then they say, is, is it your first one? Because they can tell. They can look. You've got that deer in the headlights kind of look about you, you know. And they can tell when it's your first baby. And, and so they'll say, it's your first one. And you say, yes. And then that's like an invitation for them to just speak into your life. And they start to tell you about when they had kids and what it was like for them. And these are perfect strangers just at Walmart or, or you know, at Publix or whatever. And, and, but, but even worse is, is your friends that have had kids. Your friends that have had kids, they don't tell you about the good things. They tell you the worst things possible. Like, this is what little Johnny did, and my hair finally grew back. Like, that's how those stories end. And you're like, what in the world have we gotten ourselves into? Or even worse than that, your family members... Talk about when you were born. They tell you stories of when you were little and the things that you did. And then they say, and you're going to get a double heaping of that just to pay you back. And you're like, oh my goodness. The stories that I could share with you are going to be similar to yours in some way and different in some way. And all the stories that those of us that have had kids that, that we could share... Um, they may differ here or there, but the one truth about it all remains is that a baby changes everything. A baby changes everything. When I had kids, I, I never before thought that I would ever talk about poop as much as I've talked about poop in the past seven years, and at the dinner table, no less. It's like that just becomes, you get so excited over feces. It's crazy. And uh, one of our parents will call on the phone, and the conversation will, you know, will go along, and, and before you know it, you'll be talking about, like, the color and consistency of a thing that came out of your child's nose. And this is perfectly acceptable phone etiquette. It, it doesn't make sense. I mean, a baby, never before would you talk about that. But when you have a baby, you start to talk about that. A baby changes how much you get to sleep. That's one of the big things. As a matter of fact, the, a baby does not care whether you ever sleep again. And I believe that it is their sole purpose in life to ensure that you never get a full night's sleep for the rest of your life. That's just how it happens. To prove this fact, it will be the dead of night. The baby will be all snuggled in its crib. You will have just gone into the room and checked on it. It's sleeping soundly. Its chest is heaving. It's cooing. Every, there's, little, there's little bubbles in the corner of its mouth and everything. And so you, you go and you get in your bed. You, you pull up the covers. You get all snuggled down. And right as soon as you kind of just drift off. <laughs> it happens. That blood-curdling scream that says, I'm hungry, or I need my diaper changed, or whatever. And, and you're, you, you know, you're, you're up, and you're disoriented. I learned how to change diapers and fix bottles and everything without even opening my eyes. It was just, you just kind of feel around, and you find the thing. Oh, what did I just stick my hand in? Oh, well, I'll take care of that in the morning. You know, it's crazy. 
But you do that because you don't want to open your eyes. You don't want to lose that sleep. You hang on to it. Every last little ounce. Babies don't just change your sleep. They change when you eat and how you eat and what you eat. When you have a baby, you will venture into an entirely new section of the grocery store that before you didn't even know it existed. You'll go in here and you're looking at all these jars of like multicolored sludge and you're putting that into your cart. And you don't have room for the soft drinks and the Doritos anymore because you've got diapers and formula and wagon wheels and goldfish and Cheerios and all this other crazy stuff that, that you never got before. It changes everything. It changes how you shop at the grocery store. A baby changes your coming and going. Before babies came along, if you wanted to go somewhere, you went, right? You just got up and left. You came back when you felt like it. Now when you go somewhere, well, we got to get home because we got to put the baby down. We got to give the baby a bath. We got to feed baby. We got to do this. We got to do that. And now whenever you get ready to leave after you've had a baby, it is like an act of Congress getting out of the house. I mean, you've got to have the diaper bag and the diaper wipes and the diapers and the bottles and the formula and five extra changes of clothes for you and your baby. You've got to have the pacifier, the stuffed animal, the blanket, on and on. And this is just for like a trip down to the drugstore to get a pack of gum. I mean, that's what you've got to do. Like, don't even get me started on when you have to go out of town for some. I mean, you basically, you just pack up the whole house. you like, whenever you have a child and you get ready to take that first trip out of town, just rent a U-Haul, pack it all up and just drive to your destination because that's what it's going to be like. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times I've driven somewhere not being able to see out of the rear view of our SUV. It's crazy. I mean, it's... the, the, the mirrors were useless because it was just, it was packed in. It was like Tetris, you know, with all this baby gear and everything. And, and that's, that's what it's like. When, when baby comes along, you can, you can probably count on both fingers or on both hands and have fingers left over the number of times you'll ever watch your favorite television show uninterrupted again. It's just not going to happen. Even if you have a DVR, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. As soon as you, it, it can be all quiet. You're thinking, all right, now's my time. Just sit down, watch my show. As soon as that show starts, it's on. Like, they're going to find something. And, and don't think that you're ever going to go to the bathroom or take a shower by yourself again. Because there's going to be a little set of eyes. <laughs> and you're not going to call it the bathroom anymore. You're going to call it the potty. And that's fine. You can go to the potty. You can even shut the door and lock it. But they're, they're going to bang on the door. And when you don't open, this is what they're going to do. They're going to they're gonna lean down. You know that little crack underneath? And they're going to do this number right here. And you're going to see this little set of eyes staring at you on the toilet. And you're going to see this underneath a little crack. And, and if they're anything like Avery, my daughter, they're going to write you little notes and color you little pictures. And shove them through the crack in the thing. While you're trying to take care of business in there. That's what, that's what they're going to do. Because a baby changes everything. I can remember when we brought Luke home from the hospital. A few days later, all the, all the family members left. It was just me and Sarah and our new little blessing. And we were all alone. And it was scary. <laughs> I prayed harder than I would ever prayed before. Lord, I don't know what I'm doing. I, 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 I don't know what's going on. I just, I just looked around and I thought, okay, now what? Like you, you got this kid and, 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 and it's you and, and your wife and it's all, everything's new and the kid's screaming and he, he keeps, he keeps messing himself and you got to change these and there's all this stuff going on and it's just crazy. 
You thought your life was crazy before, but a baby changes everything. And I just, now what? You know, and sometimes I, I look at Sarah and I, I look at our now seven-year-old and, and our four-year-old and I, I still think, now what? You know, because a baby changes everything. And it, it probably wasn't any different for Mary and Joseph all those years ago. I mean, sure, it was a completely different set of circumstances. But they were first-time parents, too. They were having to figure out how to take care of this little boy who just so happened was the son of God. It's difficult enough for me to take care of Luke and Avery, and they're just normal kids. I can't possibly imagine the ramifications that come along with taking care of a baby who is the savior of your people. The impact that that had to make, the fears, the the questions, the concerns, the, the, the heaviness that had to weigh on their hearts. See, when his birth was announced, it wasn't done on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter like Sean and Crystal did last week. Congratulations, guys. Instead, a choir of angels appeared in the sky. You know it's important. When a choir of angels shows up, something good is about to happen. So this choir of angels shows up and they proclaim his birth. They make the announcement to these shepherds in the fields nearby. You guys know these stories. We're wrapping up a message series today where we've talked about some of these stories. We've highlighted a number of the cast members, the players in these stories. See, Jesus did more than just change Mary and Joseph's sleep schedule. He did more than change where they shopped what section of the local market they went to. When that little baby came along, he changed not only their lives, he changed the world. A few years ago, Faith Hill, she recorded a song. I'd like to share the lyrics with you this morning. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing it because you would get up and run out. But it goes like this. Teenage girl, much too young, unprepared for what's to come. A baby changes everything. Not a ring on her hand. All her dreams and all her plans. A baby changes everything. She has to leave. Go far away. Heaven knows she can't stay. A baby changes everything. She can feel he's coming soon. There's no place. There's no room. A baby changes everything. Shepherds all gather around. Up above, the star shines down. A baby changes everything. Choir of angels sing, glory to the newborn king. A baby changes everything. My whole life was turned around. I was lost, but now I'm found. A baby changes everything. Yes, a baby changes everything. It certainly changed Mary and Joseph that day. Not just because they were his parents but because he was the Messiah. It certainly changed the shepherds that day. Because after they left that manger scene, they went and told everybody what they had seen, what they had heard, what they had witnessed. It certainly changed the the lives of at least three wise men that we know of because they traveled from miles and miles away to follow a star, to see this baby that had been born. A baby changes everything. And over the past week, you and I, we have done an incredible job, I think, of bringing home this baby into our lives. As we do every year. This little baby in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes. 
the songs, the stories, the sermons, the parties, the gift giving. It truly is the most wonderful time of the year. And I adore it, especially when you become a parent. Christmas becomes so much more magical even when you have kids to share it with and you get to see it all through their eyes. But with all of the anticipation of this newborn king coming into the world, with all the glitz and the glamour leading up to it, with all the desire and the dreams and the hopes and the fanfare, once he gets here, then what? Do we let him change us? Do we let him change us? Do we let it make a difference in our lives? Because if we're not careful, we'll just pack him back up with the Christmas tree and the Christmas lights and the rest of the nativity. And we'll put him in that box and we'll stick it on the shelf only to go through the motions again 12 months later. See, this is what I've found in my short life of 32 years. When you're a kid, 32 seems really old. When you're 32, you realize it's just a short time. In 32 years, I found out that when you have an encounter, a true encounter with the Most High God, you have no choice but to be changed. In fact, you have a responsibility to act and so be changed. It's why Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. It's why Paul wrote in his letter to the Galatians, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but it's Christ who lives in me. See, when that baby comes into your life, it's not about you anymore. It's all about that baby. When Jesus has come into our life, it's not about us anymore. It's all about him for him to be the center of it all. The Bible is chock full of examples of people who had these kinds of encounters. And how their lives were changed because of it. And for the next few minutes, we're going to take a look at one of those stories from the book of Acts. So if you've got your Bible and you want to, um, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2. The book of Acts was written by a man named Luke. Also, the, gospel, the author of the Gospel of Luke, he wrote both of these, uh, these books or, or letters, if you will, to, to a man named Theophilus. And um, uh, Luke writes the book of Acts. It's a record of the happenings in and around the early church. Now, at the beginning of the book of Acts, in the first chapter, we have, um, we have this scene of, of when Jesus ascends into heaven. And um, then the disciples, they, um, they elect uh, some, some other disciples. They cast lots and they elect some other disciples to the, to the twelve to fill in some of the gaps um, that were left by Judas Iscariot. And then we move into chapter 2. And uh, you have, you have um, the followers of Jesus, they've gone to Jerusalem, and they've gathered for a celebration known as the Feast of Weeks. And this is a one-day celebration. And um, so they're in Jerusalem, and they're celebrating, and it's during this time that they're, they're kind of really kind of having a business meeting, so to speak. They, they've, they've, they've been left on this earth, their leader, they've watched him ascend into heaven, and now they're trying to figure out, okay, now what? What do we do? 
now that Jesus has gone to heaven, what do we do with our time here? And that brings us to Acts chapter 2. And so they're gathered together in this room and, and they're, they're fellowshipping and having this meeting. And, and I'm celebrating this Feast of Weeks in Jerusalem like, like all the Jews would have been doing back then. And um, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, um, there's like a tornado in the room. It's like a violent rushing wind, and, and it's swirling around, and they hear the sounds of this wind, and then they look, and they see flames of fire being divided and resting over their heads kind of in midair. And then something really peculiar happens. They all begin to speak in an unknown language. The Bible tells us, as the Holy Spirit gives them utterance, or as the Holy Spirit directs them to or causes them to. So they begin to speak in these languages that they don't know. And we call this the day of Pentecost. Some of you have probably heard about that. And um, so on this day of Pentecost, these things start to happen. And, and, and the party kind of gets so crazy and wild that it kind of spills out into the streets. And there are other, other Jews from all over the world, from all different places. And they've come in to celebrate this Feast of Weeks. And all of a sudden, they, they hear this commotion and this sound and all these things going on. So they run to see what's going on. And, and when they get there, they all hear the word of God being proclaimed in their own language. And it's these languages that these people are speaking that they didn't take classes to learn this. Just the Holy Spirit fell upon them and they started doing this. And and the word of God is being proclaimed. And so a crowd has gathered and like any good preacher would, Peter stands up and he's like, well, you're all here. I might as well preach. He probably took an offering. So he preaches and he gives an altar call. And this is what the Bible says happened next. Acts 2, starting in verse 41, it says, Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church. About 3,000 in all. Can you imagine if 3,000 people just walked through that door? What that would look like for us as a church? 3,000 people right there. The church grew by 3,000 right then. That one day. 3,000 people goes on to say they joined with the other believers and devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, sharing in the Lord's Supper and in prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together constantly and shared everything they had. They sold their possessions and shared the proceeds with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, everybody say each day, the Lord added to their group those who were being saved. And so what we have here out of this short little passage is in essence the reason you and I are gathered in this room today. Because of what happened In that story that I just told you, in that passage that I just read, because of that is why you and I get come here to this school every Sunday morning and do what we're doing right now. It's really the beginning of the church as we know it. That's what's going on here. And contained in this passage of a few short verses are the four things the early church focused on when it began. We're talking about just a small group of people. In the grand scheme of things, just a small group of people who had an amazing encounter with Almighty God. And then accepted their responsibility to set out to establish the church 
to take action on the encounter that they just had. And they did so using four simple principles. And the things that they did in those early days, they built something that has lasted now for 2,000 some years. Based on that track record alone, I'd say that those things were pretty effective. You do four things and you establish something that lasts for thousands of years. When you're dead and gone, it carries on and carries on and carries on. And we're still doing it today. We're still here today because of those four things. I'd say they're pretty important. So let's dive in together and let's see what we can glean from God's word today. And how the encounter that those believers had, how it changed their lives. Let's take a look at how it could change our lives these many years later. See, they'd had an encounter with God Almighty, with this, essentially this little baby. And they brought him into their lives and that required them to change their lifestyle. Because when you bring a baby into your home, your lifestyle changes. Whether you like it or not, it's different. You're not your own person anymore. It is all about that little whiny, slobbering, jiggly thing. That's what it becomes about. All your pictures on Instagram are of that. I mean, like all your Facebook posts are of that. You know, he giggled this morning. You start saying things like, if you did that before you had a baby, they would put you in a straight jacket and lock you in a padded room. When this baby comes in, your whole everything about you, it changes. And so when we have this encounter with Jesus Christ, like the early church did, like Mary and Joseph and the, 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 the shepherds and the, and the wise men, like they had that encounter, something has got to change. We have a responsibility to change. Who we are and how we live our lives. And that, that first change is we've got to change to a lifestyle of worship. Our passage in Acts says, They joined together with other believers, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They worshipped together at the temple each day. Worship. We get it from an old English word that is worth-ship. Is what the word actually was, worthship. And what it means is it means to ascribe worth or value to something. We worship the things that we value. Okay? In my wallet, I have $20. Whose $20 is this? This is mine. It is mine because I value it. This is a legitimately valuable piece of paper. Okay? So I don't just hand these out freely. I wish I could, but this is something that I value. It means something to me. It's important to me. I work hard to have that stuff. And we worship the things that we value. We, we, we ascribe worth to those things that are important in our lives. And we can worship lots of stuff. We can worship sports. We can worship the pursuit of money. We can worship our families. We can worship cars. We can worship whatever. 
can worship a lot of things. We can put value on a lot of things. But the thing that we need to worship first and foremost, above all, that needs to be the center of our worship is Jesus Christ. See, worship, though, it doesn't just happen on Sunday in a setting like this. I mean, that's why we're gathered here. We're gathered here to worship. We're doing what that early church did. We are participating in what we call corporate worship. That's all of us together. But it doesn't just happen on Sunday morning at church. But worship was meant to be a lifestyle that developed both corporately, the body together, like what we're experiencing right now, as well as individually in the life of the believer. To live a lifestyle of worship means that you make things like church attendance, Bible study, and prayer a priority in your life. You make it the priority in your life. You go to church because corporate worship is important. That's part of a lifestyle. If you only show up to church on Christmas and Easter, you're not living that lifestyle. We've got to make that a priority in our lives to come together as believers to worship. But it doesn't just stop there. Then that has to carry over from Sunday into Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Because we're buckets that have holes in them and we leak. And so if we just come in and get filled up on Sunday, but we're not constantly refilling ourselves, then pretty soon we're going to empty out. So that's why every day... We need to spend time reading our Bibles. So every day we need to spend time communicating with our Heavenly Father through prayer. Because that is what a worshipful lifestyle looks like. Becomes a habit, a pattern that you do things. Right after the first of the year, we're going to do 21 days of prayer and fasting. Why 21 days? It takes 21 days to develop a habit in your life. Do something for 21 days in a row. On the 22nd day, you won't even think about it. It's something that happens in your cognitive development. It will just happen automatically. You'll do it without thinking it. 21 days in a row. That worshipful lifestyle, we need to develop a habit of worship in our lives. Here at Mount Perrin, we call it loving God. Jesus said in John 14, verse 15, he said, If you love me, you will obey my commands. See, obeying God's commands, though, requires us first knowing what God's commands are. That means from time to time, we're going to have to, I don't know, open this thing up or pull open that app on your phone or on your iPad and really get in here and see what his commands are. And then after we read those things, then we, we turn around and we go and we apply them to our lives. We begin to practice them. The Bible says, do this, and then we do it. That's part of living a lifestyle of worship, a, a, a lifestyle that, that values and gives worth to living for God. Because remember, this life is not our own anymore. It has been taken away from us. And now Jesus is at the center of it all. And he is the reason why we do what we do and how we do what we do. It's part of living that lifestyle of worship. It's a daily process. We've got to die to ourselves daily. Take up your cross daily and follow after him. In fact, living this lifestyle of worship is is part of the great commandment. 
A Pharisee asked Jesus one time, he's a teacher, which command in the law is most important? And Jesus said this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and most important command, to love God. Live a lifestyle of worship by putting him first, placing him at the center So we've got to change our lifestyle into a lifestyle of worship. The second thing, we've got to change our lifestyle to a lifestyle of community. From our passage in Acts, it says, They joined with other believers and devoted themselves to fellowship. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. All the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. When I read that passage right there, I just think of people getting together and fellowshipping and celebrating. There is nothing in that passage that makes me think that is being done alone. It's clear that these people were doing life together. They were operating together. They were meeting together. They were doing this. They weren't just islands kind of bumping around. They were, they were part of each other's life. It says this in, in Genesis 2.18. Um, it is not good for man to be alone. That's why God created woman. Sarah reminds me every day that I'm so blessed that he did that. It's not good for man to be alone. We were created to be in relationship with other people. We were created to live in this community To be in a relationship with others. And Jesus goes on after that Pharisee asked him that question about what's the most important commandment. He says the first commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second one is just like it. Is equally important. And it is love your neighbor as you love yourself. All the law and the writings of the prophets depend on these two commands. You weren't made to face this life alone. We need each other. It's a fact. Look at the person next to you and say, I need you. Look at them again and say, and you need me. Like it or not, you need me. Some of y'all will be sitting in different seats the next time you come in case that has to happen again. At Mount Perrin, we call this making friends. All right? Making friends. That's what makes our life groups so important. It's a way for you to connect to others in the church, to to build relationships and to share in both your struggles and your victories. We don't push these life groups. We don't have them because we think it's the cool thing to do. It's not like we're cutting edge. I mean, we're doing something that they started thousands of years ago. We have them because these groups were the foundational building blocks of the early church. So we believe they should be foundational to us as well. So get in a life group. We have those opportunities for you. Next month, you're going to be hearing a lot about that. Opportunities for you to, for you to plug in and connect and become a part of the life of the church. This is, this is where we're living in community. It goes past just the corporate worship setting. And it enters into where you begin to really do life with people. That's what that's all about. I've heard somebody, somebody told me, well, there's, there's just not a life group for me. 
You know what? I believe that's the Lord telling you, you need to start one. Just saying. So get in a life group or start a life group and begin living a lifestyle of community with others in the church because, not just because I said so, not just because I'm the group's pastor, but because it's what the Bible says we should do. Because it's how we were created. When God created us, it's what he meant for us to do. To be in community with other believers. So we changed to a lifestyle of worship. We changed to a lifestyle of community. The third thing that they did was they changed to a lifestyle of service. Service. It says in all the believers in our Acts 2 passage, all the believers met together constantly and shared everything they had. They sold their possessions and shared the proceeds with those in need. Service, obviously, was an integral part they're very, the very fabric of the early church. It was an integral part of the very fabric of the early church. And it just so happens that service is an integral part of our church as well. Here at Mount Perrin, we really creatively, we worked really hard on this. We call it serving others. I mean, we, got, we were in the think tank for hours on that one. What could we call serving others? Hey, I know. Let's call it serving others. So that's what we did. We called it serving others. And, and you guys can look around. You can see all this stuff right here. And all the pipe and drape in this auditorium and down the hallways and these children's rooms. That, that doesn't just spontaneously just combust into the atmosphere and, and show up. There's people that actually like get up early on Sunday mornings and they come and they set this up. So that we can have church in here. And then at the end they stay late so they can tear it down. So we put it in trucks and drive it back to a warehouse. And this happens on and on and on. Week in and week out. That's service. Right now back in this hallway over here. We have um, a number of volunteers who are providing care and ministry to some of your kids. So that you can be in here and enjoy this worship experience. That is service. We just participated um, a few weeks ago in, uh, in the Salvation Army Angel Tree Project where we provided uh, Christmas gifts for underprivileged children. That is service. Wives, you can serve your husbands maybe by cooking them their favorite meal. Husbands, you can serve your wives by doing the dishes afterwards. Right? Right? Teenagers, you can serve your parents by cleaning your room without being told and taking out the trash without being told and vacuuming the house without being told and mowing the grass without being told and just being quiet about it without being told. You guys get the picture. Some of you could serve by... Babysitting Pastor Jeremy's 19 kids for free while he and Corey go on a date night. Wait, what? He, he's only got four kids? You sure it's not 19? Maybe some of you could serve by washing Pastor Trevor's truck. I'm sure he would appreciate that. That's service. Whatever you choose, whatever it is, just find something and do it. The key, that's the key. Just, just find something you can do and do it. Because that's what Jesus did. 
And in fact, Jesus told his disciples this. He said, whoever wants to become great, how many of you want to be great? How many of you at the end of your life, you would look back and you would say on your tombstone, maybe you would say, this was a great person. How many of you want to be great? I've got the secret right here. Okay. Are you ready? Because I want to be great. I want to be remembered as somebody who was great. Jesus gives us the key to this. It's so good. You may want to write this down. Maybe get it tattooed backwards on your forehead. So every morning you can look at it and read it in the mirror. Here it goes. Whoever wants to become great among you must wait. This has got to be wrong. It says you've got to serve the rest of you like a servant. What? This doesn't make any sense. Whoever wants to become the first among you must serve all of you like a slave. Whoever wants to be first has to be last. That's what Jesus said. He said, in the same way, the Son of Man did not come to be served. Instead, he came to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many people. You guys have maybe heard the story of the upper room and it's the Last Supper. Jesus is getting ready to die. He's sharing a meal with his followers one last time before he is arrested and taken to the cross. And he does something really cool. He gets up and he goes over and he gets a towel and a basin of water and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. Talking about a man, he's getting ready to go die for these people. Okay? But he goes and washes their feet as this final act before moving on. Because Jesus came to serve, not to be served. I mean, think about it. They didn't have closed-toe shoes back then. They didn't have paved roads. They didn't have cars back then. They walked everywhere they went. And they followed behind donkeys and camels. And when you follow behind donkeys and camels, sometimes you step in it. They were wearing these sandals and the roads were dirty and dusty and, and everything. And so, so the, the, the water and the, and the towel and the basin, it was safe for like, like the, the, the bottom of the bottom of the bottom slave. Like that's the servant who washed everybody's feet. And Jesus, he goes and he washes all of his disciples' feet because he said, this is what it's about. This is what being great is about. It's about serving others. It's about putting other people first. It's about doing things to pour into people and build the kingdom. Simply put, life is better and more fulfilling when you give yourself away. That's service. So live a lifestyle of service. So we talked about three things. We talked about changing our lifestyle to a lifestyle of worship, changing to a lifestyle of community, changing to a lifestyle of service, and then the fourth one, changing to a lifestyle of witness or evangelism. Right at the end of Acts chapter 2, it says this. And each day, I had you repeat that each day. And each day, the Lord added to their group those who were being saved. You know, and I thought about this and I realized this is, this is really just a result of the other three. Because when you begin to live a lifestyle of worship, when you begin to live a lifestyle of community, when you begin to live a lifestyle of service, then a lifestyle of witness and evangelism, it just naturally happens. Because you won't be able to contain your story. 
When you're worshiping and communing and serving, there's going to be things that happen and you're going to have to tell other people. And if you don't tell them, somebody else will get wind of it and they'll tell. It's inevitable. You know, the last thing Jesus ever told his followers before he went into heaven, right there at the beginning of Acts, he's getting ready to ascend into heaven and he could have said pretty much anything. So I got to think that, that, you know, like the, this is the last time he's going to see them face to face for quite some time until he comes back to the earth. And so it's the last thing and he's got, he's got one more thing he wants to tell them. I got to figure it's pretty important. This is what he says. And it's, it's my paraphrase. He says, you're going to have an encounter with the Holy Spirit, which is going to empower you to be my witnesses. All over the world. Basically, what he said was, is you're going to have an encounter with the Holy Spirit so that you can share the story. That's what we call it here at Mount Perrin. We call it sharing the story. It's clear that that's what was going on in the early church. Because every day, it says every day, you look up that word in the Greek, it means every day. People were being saved and added to the church. Because when you share the story of what God is doing in your life, how he's changing you, the things he's doing in and through you, how he's using you in this world to make an impact, people can't help but want to be a part of that. They want to be a part of something that's growing and moving and developing and thriving and alive. They want to be a part of something that's making a difference in the world around them. And that's really why I'm here. Back in the summer when Jeremy first called me about coming on staff here. And those of you that don't know, I've known Jeremy since eighth grade. So we've got a long relationship with one another and have kept in contact over the years. I'll tell you funny stories later. But when he first approached me about coming and taking this job, I asked him really two questions. I felt like these are the two most important questions that, that I could ask. And to be quite honest, it's, it's all that I really needed to know. The first question was something like, what are you trying to do in Canton? Why are you there? What, what, what's your church trying to, why, why did you put a church in Canton? And he said, trying to reach the 85,000 unchurched people in a seven mile radius around Sequoia High School and I thought wow that's cool 85,000 unchurched people in a seven mile radius I said that could be like 85 mega churches in seven miles what a task that's challenging I mean that's overwhelming you've got all these people you need to reach And I thought, I'd like to be a part of that. Second question I asked them was, these 85,000 people, how do you plan on reaching them? And he didn't even have to think about it. You could tell that it it was something that was part of his heartbeat because he just spit it right out. He said, we're going to reach them by equipping them to live a Christ centered life, helping them to love God, make friends serve others and share the story. I hadn't even been here yet and I wanted to come. I wanted to come and be a part of this. This past summer, some of you were here, some of you weren't. Some of you couldn't care less. Sarah and I walked through the door of the school foyer right there. She looked at me and I looked at her and we knew right then 
this is where we needed to be. See, in essence, we're not trying to reinvent the wheel here. We're not doing anything really cutting edge or different. We're just doing the same things that the early church started doing 2,000 years ago. Since I've been immersed in this culture for the past three months or so, something's become really clear to me. Before I got here, I didn't really realize this. It it, it took me getting here to really discover it. And and that is is that that reaching those 85,000 people that we always refer to, it doesn't start with getting one of those families to come to this church on a Sunday morning or showing up in a, an event, or participating in a life group, or whatever. It, it, it doesn't start with that. Reaching those 85,000 starts right here in this room this morning with you and with me deciding that from here on out, I'm going to live a Christ-centered life. From here on out, I'm going to change my lifestyle to a lifestyle of worship. From here on out, I'm going to live in a lifestyle of community with other believers. From here on out, I'm going to give my life away in service through a lifestyle of service. From here on out, when God does something in my life or in the life of someone else that I know, I'm going to tell everybody about it. I'm going to climb up on a ladder or in a tree or on a mountain and I'm going to shout it as loud as I possibly can because people want to be a part of something like that that's changing lives that's making a difference it doesn't start with them it starts with us So we've just celebrated this this wonderful celebration of Christmas. And we've brought this beautiful bundle of joy. This little golden fleece diapers, little balled up fists. Eight pounds, six ounce baby Jesus. Don't even know a word yet. We've brought him into our homes, into our hearts, and into our lives. But are we letting him change us? Are we letting that help us to become who we are supposed to be as the body and the church of Christ? Or are we just putting him up on the shelf for one more year? See, when a baby comes in, changes everything. Becomes the center of your universe. But has Jesus changed us? Is he the center of our universe? Are we worshiping him over everything else? Are we in community with other believers? Doing life together the way that we were intended? Loving the Lord our God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And loving our neighbors as ourselves. Are we serving others through the gifts and talents and skills and abilities and resources that he's given us? Are we giving those things away to make a difference, to make an impact? And are we telling others about what God is doing in our life? Because when we have that encounter with that Christ child, when we have a true encounter with God most high, it demands that we change. You and I have a responsibility to change. Otherwise, what are we doing? It 
If that's not changing our life, why are we setting up this pipe and drape every Sunday? If that's not changing our life, why are we trying to pour things into our kids every Sunday morning? If that's not changing our life, why are we doing any of this? Because when we have that encounter, it demands change. We're getting ready to roll over into a new year. And a lot of you are making resolutions, setting goals to lose weight or to work out or to eat different or to drink different or to dress different. I want to challenge you that while those things are good, what we should really be doing is saying, God, in in 2014, unlike any other, I want you to be at the center of my life. I want you to change my lifestyle of worship, change my lifestyle of community, change my lifestyle of serving, change my lifestyle of evangelism and witness. Lord, I want you to bring increase in all of those and help me to keep you right at the center of it all. Because when you bring home baby, that's what happens. It becomes the center. Now that we've brought Jesus into our lives, what do we do with him? choice is yours so if you're here with me this morning you say man I want to make that choice for me I, I, I know that, that I want 2014 to be to be like the line is being drawn in the sand and I want 2014 to be like that year that I can look back on and say oh yeah that's that's when it happened that's when that's when it turned around for me then you do that by making Jesus the center and if that's you, if something I've said this morning or, or if maybe you felt the Holy Spirit just, just tug on your heart, if, if any of that has just resonated with you this morning, then as Sean leads us in this song, I want you to make this song just your prayer. Let these words be like just you singing to God. You telling God what you want for your life in this coming year. And then you and I together, let's go do something awesome. And watch as this church and this body of people makes a huge impact on those 85,000 who are lost and going to hell in our community. Are you with me? If so, let's stand and let's sing together.